3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. I spoke at the weekend with Dr. Tim Anderson regarding the situation in Ukraine. But first I asked him to focus on the connections between the CIA and the Biden family with Ukraine over many years. Uh, Only in general, uh, in a general sense. um, I mean, I haven't really spent too much time on Hunter Biden and his laptop and... uh, but of course, as is well known now, they, they've talked about it being some sort of Russian scam for years and years, and then it emerges more recently that indeed Hunter, uh, Joe Biden's son was um, involved in some sort of energy deals in Ukraine. I mean, he didn't really have anything to offer, but it was basically a corrupt link into all of the money that was being poured into Ukraine to try and use it as a weapon against Russia, in which they eventually succeeded. And back to 1914, the coup, what was the involvement of the CIA and the US in that? 2014 was uh, the the coup in Kiev, which effectively changed the, I mean, later on they actually changed the constitution, but effectively changed the makeup of Ukraine, which was in some respects sort of divided between integration with Russia and integration with Europe, but it became much more hostile to to Russia um, after the coup, which now there's a lot of detail of how that happened and how Victoria Nuland, who was the State Department person, was involved in trying to set up the new regime after the Kiev coup. You might recall that the then Prime Minister of Ukraine fled to Russia. He didn't sort of put up resistance, basically, so there was no question of supporting the old regime, but at least he was elected. Uh, What was his name? Yanukovych. But... So then you got a series of governments there which were extremely uh, anti-Russia and um, with the, the members of it actually selected by Newland and the others from the State Department. And, of course, the CIA was, was involved. It goes without saying there, the US, the U.S. state was involved in that coup. And it then led to immediately the succession of Crimea, in Crimea, held a, a referendum where they were where they joined Russia effectively and there'd been a centuries old link with Russia of course the problem is of course in this background you've got Ukraine and Russia relationship over the the centuries has been one that there's been a shifting of these sorts of borders and when um, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union then 
these differences didn't didn't matter so much because the Russian side always had access to the Crimean port and so on. So then uh, Crimea, after 2014, succeeded very rapidly. Of course, the, the NATO never accepted that. And there was a resistance in the Donbass battle, southeast Ukraine and southwest Russia, and is mainly Russian-speaking people with the port, industrial port of Mariupol and so on. They rejected the whole, the whole coup and the new regime in Ukraine, and they came under siege from for the last eight years from these hyper-nationalists, many of them neo-Nazis, who were effectively waging a war against the Donbass region, which is mainly in, on the Ukraine, Lugansk and Donetsk, waging a war against them, and they were effectively succeeding. And only just recently, when President Putin decided to carry out this special military operation, in, mainly in support of the Donbass region, did Russia recognize them as independent republics? So there's a long history to this, but the Biden family was um, was deeply involved in when Biden was when Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, which is to say the Obama administration was deeply involved in that coup, and now we've reverted to that with the Biden administration provoking this um, what they call an invasion of, of Ukraine. Can you explain the the Russian speaking people? In Ukraine, there's been a very long relationship between what is now called Ukraine and Russia because we had the Soviet Union. But even before that, we had um, Kiev was a Russian capital at one time, and Moscow. There's a history to how Moscow became the capital of Russia, basically. But there was a lot of toing and froing with, with those borders, and um, in the the iteration of let's say 1990, when the Soviet Union was being broken down basically with you've ended up with a, a sizable minority uh, a, large, a very large group of uh, you know, Ukraine citizens who were Russian speaking and very allied to Russia in many respects and that wasn't a problem so long as there was a good relationship between Ukraine and Russia but with the coup of 2014 then you had enormous strains there because effectively the the hypernationalists I'll call them hypernationalists or ultranationalists uh, many of which have a link back to the Banderists, the Ukrainian nationalist group that collaborated with the Nazis and was deeply, directly involved in the, the purging of Russians and Poles and Jews and Gypsies in Ukraine. They were deeply involved in the beginning of what's now called the Holocaust against the Jewish people, but it wasn't just the Jewish people. The largest number of people killed were Russians, 5% of whom were, were Jewish, at that time, so there's a long tradition of this ultranationalism, particularly in Western Ukraine, which is hostile to Russians. The situation that sort of re-emerged, if you like, after the 2014 coup, this idea of a hypernationalist Ukrainian group, which could be used as I think um, it's been attributed to George Soros that the expression to be used as a torpedo against Russia to try and destabilize and possibly, hopefully, fragment Russia. This is what the U.S. has done with all of its rivals, you know. With You notice with China, of course, that there's Xinjiang, there's Hong Kong, there's Taiwan. They're trying to destabilize and fragment the big states who they see as their rivals and threatening their, their dominance in the world. How much economic aid and military aid do you believe has gone into Ukraine since 2014? 
Uh, I don't know the last eight years. There's there's certainly been a lot, and a, a lot of it has been covert through the National Endowment for Democracy. You know, this is a group that was created in the 80s, effectively to do what a lot of what the CIA used to do in terms of what they call civil society organisations, which are largely propaganda outfits and um, and other sorts of political groups, which they call non-political. They use it in Latin America a lot too. So you've got the NED funding um, and you've got the CIA funding and you've got the State Department funding and you've got some other bodies there, USAID, for example. Also, the, the aid organization is, is really runs in parallel with the National Endowment for Democracy, which is funded by the US Congress, but they claim that it's non-political. So you've got that sort of funding. Then you've got the Pentagon's funding and it's emerged since the the Russian operation, which began in earlier this year, that there's been large-scale military training. I read one figure somewhere over 20,000 troops uh, and paramilitaries have been trained by the U.S. in Ukraine, even though Ukraine had not even applied to be a member of NATO at that stage. But nevertheless, there was a deep NATO presence. And now, of course, since the Russian operation, you've seen huge additional amounts of military uh, inventory and other other expenses. Uh, I think the the latest figure was Biden was trying to get 33 billion dollars through Congress, and Congress upped it to 40 billion dollars. And there was only a handful of um, maybe around 10 Congress people who opposed that, and they were all Republicans, which is interesting, isn't it? In in the 21st century, with these wars, hybrid wars, I call them. Sometimes they call it fourth generation war. Wars that involve proxy armies and propaganda and economic wars and so on. It's the conservatives in the U.S. who are more skeptical of each new war. It's the innovators with these sorts of wars have been the Obamas and and, the Biden, and Hillary Clintons and the Bidens. What what used to be called the liberal side of U.S. politics. What do you know about the present president and the entourage around him? So uh, Zelensky is as everyone knows, a, a former comedian. And by all accounts, he's a type of frontman who was put up by Ukrainian oligarchs, one of Ukrainian billionaires, as a frontman to present a different sort of face in Ukrainian politics. And I guess it, he did have a broad appeal at the beginning. But um, if you notice, even during the conflict this year, there's been an extraordinary change. One was that there were some quite serious peace talks fairly early on you know, to prevent the conflict. And, uh, for example, there was a couple of meetings in, I think, in Minsk in Belarus, and then there was a meeting in Ankara in, in Turkey. Turkey hosted it at that time. And there looked to be some quite hopeful signs early on in the conflict. And, you know, the Zelensky administration, Zelensky's representatives, he didn't go himself, but his representatives were went to Belarus, they went to Turkey. And there were the terms of, uh, you know, addressing the Russian grievances, which was that the the use of Nazi proxies near their border, the, the military build-up, the Russians were and expressed it very clearly late last year into this year that you know what their concerns were, and they had to they wanted some resolution over the Crimea and over the status of the Donbas region, Lugansk and Donetsk, which over which there were agreements, the Minsk agreements, which were never complied with. That is to say. They, was looking for, they were looking for some sort of political solution uh, for autonomy within Ukraine, for 
the Donbass region, the, the Russian-speaking people of the Donbass region. None of that came about um, under Zelensky or, or, or his predecessor, but then the peace talks that Zelensky's administration was involved in were clearly sabotaged by the NATO the NATO group, which just said, no, no, keep fighting, you're going to win. And they kept saying, you're going to win, even while Russia has taken over most of southeast Ukraine. There's still heavy fighting going on. But it's clear that the, the, the forces behind this, forces outside Ukraine, made the Zelensky administration uh, in Kiev basically back away from peace talks and just keep fighting, which is a disaster for the Ukrainian people because they're trying to fight against a much bigger neighbour who has grievances, many say are legitimate grievances, and refusing to talk and just fighting is, is really... Well, you've seen what's happened. The, you know, the Mariupol... Um, they lost in Mariupol. Um, there's heavy fighting against, but it seems that Zelensky regime, as is consistent with a what you should call a puppet regime, has really uh, abandoned the earlier hopeful signs of peace talks. What happened to the peace talks? Certainly, people in Ukraine wanted them, but the outside players, um, the US in particular, but also Germany and and some of the others in in NATO, uh, Britain in particular have just been saying, no, no, don't talk to the Russians, just keep fighting them, because, of course, the US wants to weaken Russia. Ukra Ukraine, if there were a genuine Ukrainian voice of a genuine Ukrainian nation there, they would want some resolution with their big neighbour. But the NATO and the US have pushed them into uh, this uh, endless war, which is a disaster for, for the people in Ukraine. Just as an aside, I was told from a second hand from a person who used to live in Czechoslovakia that he believes that or had been told that they are producing chemical weapons in Ukraine. Is there any truth to that? Yes, well, there was, um, under the old Soviet Union, there was experimentation in chemical and biological weapons. Um, now, there, I, I, I don't know that there is even a biological weapons convention to this because the US has been against it but the old nuclear facilities chemical warfare facilities of the Soviet Union were when the Soviet Union was dismembered and, and a separate Ukraine was created um, 30 odd years ago the US entered Ukraine at that time under some sort of safeguard guardianship status but has um, a, a fair amount of this has emerged since at first they were saying this is Russian propaganda and then it was admitted by Victoria Newland and some of the others in, in congressional hearings that the US has been effectively playing a type of guardianship role supposedly to provide defensive mechanisms against the use of these chemical and biological weapons but in fact developing those capabilities and so this is the whole question of biological laboratories and chemical weapons in the Ukraine is one of the things that alarmed the Russians, of course, because they found, and the Chinese, I might add, the Chinese have expressed concern about this, that they're concerned that these sorts of non-conventional weapons are being developed and on the border of a big power which has got legitimate reason to be alarmed about it. So um, that was you know, a historical legacy, more or less, that the US played this pseudo role of being a guardian a, a, a safeguard of the weapons that were developed there in Ukraine I think Ukraine renounced its nuclear arsenal at that time but uh, in terms of chemical and biological 
the US has been in there for a good 30 years, and that's been a one of the one of the um, channels of US um, funds, and finance, and and influence within Ukraine itself, even before the 2014 coup. And where's this extension of NATO going to end? Well, now the conflict has alarmed the Scandinavians now and and the Poles, and the Poles have their own ultranationalism, which is another question, and their own history with with uh, the Russians. But you've you've seen that Finland and Sweden have now applied to join NATO, and Russia's response to that has been, well, we don't mind that so long as you don't do a military build-up on our borders. That's that's what they expressed the most concern about with Ukraine in particular. But Ukraine is a special case because you have a very, very large minority of Russian-identified Russian speakers in the Ukraine itself. But uh, Russia certainly doesn't want to tolerate a military build-up on its border. And although Finland and, and Sweden have applied to join NATO, which might not be so easy and might take a long time and, uh, you know, maybe things will change, but um, that's not synonymous with having a a military build-up on its borders. Interesting that Finland, having a big border with Russia, has not done anything like this in a, in a very long time. But anyway, this is a result of, uh, in many respects, the fact that contrary to promises that were made to Russia, uh, the Yeltsin administration back in the early 90s, that there would be no, I think they said, not even one inch of NATO expansion towards Russia and uh, Russia, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, said, what do you need NATO for? And apparently Russia even applied to join NATO at one stage. But nevertheless, what happened was uh, NATO did indeed expand eastward and many, many states in Eastern Europe joined NATO, seeing some sort of benefit and some sort of incorporation in the the ambit of the European economic bloc, for example. Um, So there's been a huge expansion of NATO eastward, and this is part of the the reason for the, the concern on the Russian side. Well, big losers out of this conflict are both the people of Ukraine and I'd imagine the, the people of Russia, but also the fact that so much food, which goes to often poorer countries around the world, has been delayed or destroyed. Yes, you're, you're, you're very right there. I think the biggest losers are the people of Ukraine in this because they didn't have a government in Kiev which could see its way through to coming to some security agreement with Russia, which is its neighbour. You know, the US is not the neighbour of Ukraine. Russia is the neighbour, and they have to live with each other. And, and the regime in Kiev, after the coup of 2014, simply never had the political will and never wanted to um, engage in that sort of security negotiation with Russia. There's been eight years of effectively civil war in Ukraine, which eventually... Russia was provoked into intervening in. So now, as I said, the NATO powers, the the leaders of NATO, uh, the US, um, Germany, the UK, have been pushing for ongoing war rather than peace negotiations. So that's mainly at the cost of the Ukrainian people there. But as you say, Ukraine and Russia have also, in the past, a very important role in grain production for the world, a very significant minority proportion of wheat in the world comes from those two countries and now either production is disrupted in the case of Ukraine because Ukraine has its own food problems and energy problems now or in the case of Russia there is this economic war which is extended and Russia itself has stopped 
large part of its exports of grain. So that is really, uh, in, in, in the first instance, it's um, the the price of grain has gone up, and of course the price of energy has gone up. I read recently that the, the price of gas is now 250% what it was last year. So there already was a looming energy crisis in Europe. The energy situation in Europe is much worse, and of course aggravated by this economic warfare, which is over which the U.S. is the most enthusiastic. It seems that a fair number of the Europeans are finding a way around what the U.S. calls sanctions. Of course, they aren't sanctions under international law. They're unilateral measures. They're coercive measures trying to bring about some political outcome uh, from an outside power's point of view. But the price of energy's gone up, the price of food's going up, and that um, has an impact uh, globally. We saw... 2008, there was a global food crisis linked to energy again at that time because, you know, there were very strong links between energy and food through transport, fertilizers and machinery and so on. So, um, yes, it's going to have an impact on uh, a lot of the world, particularly the countries that are dependent on importing grain. And in the past, the liberals told us that, you know, you don't need to produce your own food, you can trade. But really, the trading system is also now a mechanism for these um, terrible impacts like sharp price rises in grain to go up. And, and that, um, in the past, has caused famine in many, many countries. In 2008, it caused famine in dozens of countries. And unfortunately, the doom and gloom headlines now, I think there was one in The Economist I saw today or yesterday, that uh, really there is some serious... Um, food security issues looming as a result of this this conflict in Ukraine. One particular country that you've been involved with and supporting is Venezuela. What's the situation there with the crisis in energy and perhaps food production? Yeah, well, Venezuela has been under enormous pressure and economic war from the US like so many other countries and um, its economy internally is just recovering from, just starting to recover from several years of serious depression and hyperinflation. They're managing to stabilise the currency now. Economic growth kicked in last year and now Venezuela from a, from a low is, is growing faster than the rest of that is due to its oil industry which they've recovered with the help of some of their allies like Iran in particular. So there's now an interesting transcontinental cooperation between countries that have been attacked economically by the US in this what I call a hybrid war large part of which are, are these economic wars but the, the of course the energy problem in the world is um, aggravated very seriously by the fact that the US has declared war in different forms against several of the largest oil exporters in the world first the invasion of Iraq and still to this day the destabilization of Iraq and trying to prevent it having good relations with its neighbor. The economic war with Iran, the same sort of economic war against Venezuela and, uh, and Cuba, its partner Cuba, and now the, the economic measures against Russia. So with Russia, Iran, Iraq and Venezuela, you've got four of the biggest energy exporters in the world. And that's putting a lot of pressure on, on energy prices here. But Venezuela itself, interestingly enough, the Biden administration has perhaps got some inkling of the 
the problems they've created for themselves. They've gone back to Venezuela recently, seeing that the, you know, this energy crisis is worse on the Europeans in many respects than on the US. The Europeans, the Western Europeans, for all of their wealth and money, um, are, are in the grip of this, this energy crisis. And so the US is looking for some alternatives, and it's not they can't increase production enough in the Gulf monarchies like Qatar and so on. So they've gone back to Venezuela after all this, uh, still pretending that this unelected person, Juan Guaido, is the president of Venezuela, which the, the Trump administration did, still pretending that, but giving a limited license, for example, to Chevron and perhaps some other companies to try and re reopen business with the Venezuelans. Now, how the Venezuelans are going to respond to this is yet to be seen. It hasn't happened yet, but... The Biden administration did send a team to Caracas just recently to reopen that, seeing that uh, their current preoccupation has been with Russia. But, you know, people aren't fooled. They have memories. And the Iranians, the Venezuelans, the Iraqis all remember what the role of the U.S. there. But nevertheless, business is business. And so it remains to be seen what sort of new uh, channels might be opened up between Venezuela and the US. But Venezuela, for its own part, has managed to reactivate some of its refineries, which were shut down. And on the food front, you did mention Venezuela's um, own food situation. Venezuela in the past, for 100 years, was really very dependent on food, like a lot of oil economies. Uh, most oil economies really become very lazy. They depend on you know, getting a rent out of their resources and they don't develop industry and even agriculture. And that was the case 20 years ago in Venezuela. But one of the, the little uh, spoken of success stories in Venezuela was that they made efforts over many years, the Chavez uh, administration, the Maduro administration, to try and restart agriculture in Venezuela. And there's been some success there. They, they are now producing substantial quantities of food and even food from Venezuela. Not to say they aren't still importing food. They are importing food, but they are in a better situation in terms of being able to produce their own food. Well, it's a rich country with rich land. But they should be able to do it. But as I said, there's a logic of oil economies, which of course applied to Venezuela, that they neglected agriculture for, for many, many decades. So things are looking a little bit better in Venezuela. They're still very tough because... All of these countries, when the U.S. gangs up and when they get the support of the Europeans, and because the, U the U.S. Con has controlled the global financial system th through the dollar but also through the Swiss system, you know, which is a, a bank exchange process based in Belgium but really controlled by the U.S., this has really been one of the means by which they've been able to do real economic damage to a lot of countries. And I think... One of the good things perhaps coming out of the, the terrible war in Ukraine is that it has given an additional impetus to the Russians and the Chinese to uh, look to actually create at a much larger scale an alternative to the Swiss system, an alternative to the dollar, so that the US doesn't have this ability to come in whenever it wants and strangle through its financial mechanisms um, every new country. I think between the US and the European Union at the moment, there's 33 unilateral coercive measures, which they call sanctions, but most of which have no uh, recognition under international law against, against these countries. And many of them have now third-party uh, elements, that is to say, the measures against Cuba, the measures against Iran, 
uh, the measures against Russia. Now the U.S. threatens uh, to act against countries who do business with Cuba or Iran or Russia. So it's not just the countries they're targeting, they're targeting anyone else who does business with them. That's, of course, illegal under international law, but everyone continues to call it sanctions. Um, I say coercive measures is, is a better word there, but this is um, the world we live in, and it's, uh, it's, the economic war is really terrible because it's warfare in a real sense, in the sense that it's indiscriminate. You imagine if you're in Syria, for example, and you have these sanctions and third-party sanctions Everyone in the country is affected by it. They can't get investment. They can't sell things. It's extremely difficult. People who want to take money there have to carry cash and so on because the banking system internationally doesn't work because the U.S. controls the banking system. So this is something that affects health systems, affects food security. It affects everything. It's a terrible, indiscriminate form of warfare. I think calling it sanctions is far too generous. Just to focus finally... Tim, on the ninth summit of the Americas being held in Los Angeles between the 6th and the 10th of June, the theme is building a sustainable, resilient and equitable future. From what you've been saying in the last little while, it's going to be a big, a big task. Well, it's, um, it's starting to look like a farce, really. I don't know even if it's going to go ahead at the moment. There's, so far as I know, 20 countries in the Americas. There's 35 countries in the Americas, right? 35 states. 20 of them have said they will not attend because the Biden administration is trying to exclude Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, three of its favorite targets at the moment and subject to its coercive measures, the ones I just spoke about. Brazil, for its part, for other reasons, because Biden hasn't spoken to Bolsonaro there. Bolsonaro says he won't go. All of the Caribbean countries, which are small countries, but a lot of them, are boycotting because they support Cuba and Venezuela, because Cuba and Venezuela have always done the right thing by them in helping with health, education, energy security, so on. And um, importantly, Mexico, the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, has said he's not going to attend either. And I think he's been followed by Honduras, which used to be a loyal U.S. supporter, but now has a, a centre-left government, and uh, and who else? Uh, Bolivia also. So you've got a very large number of the Latin American countries um, threatening a boycott there. So I think the the future of this next month's conference in Los Angeles is is hanging by a thread at the moment. I think I believe that the Biden administration has sent a team to Mexico to talk to President Lopez Obrador, but what comes of that remains to be seen. And you're off to Cuba. I've been working on a project which is to um, link up some of the resistance groups, the anti-imperialist groups, something that we're trying to bring about next month, yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you for today, Tim. Welcome, Jan. Welcome. And it's always great to have Tim Anderson on Tuesday time. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep communities strong. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. If you were a refugee from the violence and brutality of a dictator, you certainly would not be impressed to find his son now the possible new president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., walking the streets of Melbourne. That was what confronted Filipino living in Melbourne, not all from the era of Marcos Sr. and his dictatorship, but certainly those who knew the horrific stories of the brutality and violence until he was forced from the country in 1986. Human rights activist May Kotsakis was on the streets, one of a number of overseas Filipinos who made clear that they did not welcome his presence here in Australia. I asked May how the word got out that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was in Australia and in fact in Melbourne. A member of, you know, the uh, group that was campaigning for his opposition, for Lenny Robredo, actually saw him apparently near the apartment where he was staying in Victoria 1. And when Marcos realized that he was a Filipino, Marcos apparently shake his hands. So then he told us that Marcos, Bongbong Marcos, is here. And that was the uh, time that, uh, you know, that the protest was organized in front of, uh, you know, of the apartment of Victoria 1 in Elizabeth Street. Accidents that, you know. It's a bit surprising, isn't it, that... The, the future leader of a country has to sort of sneak into Australia and no one knows about it? Probably the government would know about it, but, uh, you know, it wasn't announced because, firstly, his winning is contentious. It's being questioned. He wasn't declared yet, not yet declared as, you know, as the rightful winner, as the president. So at the time, he he's probably his trip cannot be uh, cannot be uh, sort of considered as official. That's why maybe and, and, and I think I think his intelligence and I think Marcos would know that wherever he goes he will be met with protest. But he knows he's got some pretty good friends with the Australian government, doesn't he? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure whether uh, at the time when the election result was announced, whether um, Morrison has congratulated him. There was, a, you know, I, I haven't read any sort of news, but the other president like Biden has congratulated him. Xi Jinping of China congratulated him. He would have, you know, friends just like Duterte, even with the human rights violation, uh, which is very rampant. He, he still, you know, he... The Australian government never, never call attention, never raise the issue of human rights publicly anyway. Well, they're supporting them, aren't they, both militarily, training the troops here, training the troops there. Lots of Australian money goes to the Philippines. 
Yes, and it is not being announced, isn't it? It is very secret how much money was uh, is being given to the Philippine military. Not only that, uh, what other materials, what other equipment and, you know, personnel is being given to the Philippines. Do we know if Filipino from the military are being trained in Australia? At the moment, we don't. Uh, before, we used to meet them. We used to... Um, know that uh, there are Filipino military who have been trained. They actually come to William to the uh, base here in Laverton. Somehow, this time or maybe for a few years, we haven't met them. But we know that Australian military are being trained to speak Tagalog, Filipino, and they are being sent to the Philippines in special. Well, we met the Filipino teachers, actually, two of them. We met them in uh, Federation Square, and they actually introduced themselves. They said that they are going to SBS because the Australian military special forces are being interviewed, and they are training them to speak Filipino because they are being sent to the Philippines. And it actually sort of raised an alarm with us because, you know, they they probably will be integrating with the Filipino masses. That's why they want to learn Filipino language. Tell us what you know about the history of this man who might be the new president of the Philippines. There is actually a timeline that I was, you know, I was reading a while ago, not specifically about Bongbong Marcos, but the whole family, the Marcoses. Uh, Bongbong Marcos became also the uh, congressman. He was governor of Ilocos, where that was where the province where you know they their family belong. And he became congressman, and then he became senator. In 2016 election, he ran for vice president, but he was defeated by Lenny Robredo, the one you know the one who was running for president against him in this election. They have come back, you know, they have actually used the government resources, the money that they have stolen, stolen wealth, they have used it to actually change the history in the Philippines and to actually change their family image. But apparently they have hired, what is that, Cambridge Analytica to, to rebrand the family image in social media. So they have done that as early as 1990s. Yeah, I was actually speaking with uh, a nurse here, and he, she said that I was actually surprised. She said that when she was at school, history, it was mentioned that the Marcos years, you know, Marcos Senior, was the golden years in the Philippines, that they have built a lot of infrastructure, but there was no mention at all of the human rights violation or of the plunder, the wealth that they have stolen. There was no mention of that. So even in the school textbooks, they, ha they have already managed to change the history. What is known about the connection between the Duterte family and the Marcos family? At the 2016 election when Duterte ran, apparently the Marcos family helped financially with the Duterte campaign. And Duterte actually was the president who have allowed the body of Marcos Sr., who was convicted, he was actually allowed to be the body of Marcos to be buried in the Hero Cemetery. Hero Cemetery. And so there was a lot of protest. But it was the 30 who allowed that. And the 30 even declared September 11 as a public holiday in Ilocos. September 11 
was the birthday of Marcos Sr. Apparently, it was declared that in Ilocos, that is a public holiday. So the third day helped very much in changing the image of Marcos, the Marcos family. Even at the time, as soon as the 31, the presidency, they have already the plan of having this Marcos the 30 tandem in this election. So they have planned for it for quite some time, how they are going to control the politics in the Philippines. What do you know about the allegations of fraud, violence, murder that preceded this election? This election actually was marred with anomalies, with fraud, both buying, violence, and even the disinformation. Even before the election under Duterte, there has been a lot of red tagging, and uh, red tagging of activists, opposition, even journalists that are reporting something that is against Duterte or against Marcos. And actually, the biggest media network in the Philippines was closed by Duterte, the ABS-CBN. When activists or when opposition or anyone who is red tagged, then they are subject to, they can be actually violated. Their human rights can be violated. They can be killed or they can be accused of false charges and they can be imprisoned. There are lots of them, you know, campaign activists who was imprisoned. Uh, the red tagging was so much. So there was actually violence even before the election. There's lots of fraud. There are lots of reports actually even now. There is there is a report there in the social media. You can see that uh, ballots are being changed by police. Ballot boxes were dumped in a bacon plot. And during the election, 1,800 vote counting machines has broken down. This enfranchised 1.4 million Filipinos who were able to vote because of the, the vote counting machine that broke down. There were lots of anomalies, and uh, a lot of people as well were saying that after they have voted, the watcher there would say, just leave us your ballot, we'll be the one to put it in the machine. But of course, some Filipinos, they, they trust them, and they just leave, and leave the ballot. So we don't know. They probably check the ballot, who is who, who that uh, person has voted, and don't know what happened, or whether the, the ballot paper was actually put into the machine. There is actually a lot of anomalies in this election. And apparently, uh, when the vote counting machine has broken down, some voting places, polling places, have very low queue. There is one report that in Tondo, which is that is a poor area in Manila, the, the queue is up to 10 kilometers. And the voting was already closed. The polling places were already closed. The, apparently, they extended to 9 p.m. There are still people on the queue because they didn't know. They wanted to vote. And some of them went home early in the morning, you know, in the morning because they, they, they wanted to vote. And some as well were very disappointed because they were still on the queue at 8, apparently 8 p.m. And there were already news that Marcos Duterte has already won. The election wasn't even finished, so there was already a news that the, the two has already won the election. So people are saying that it was pre-programmed. They already know, you know, they pre-programmed the results of the election. That's why even here in Melbourne, there is a polling place in Melbourne. They don't even have a poll watcher, a poll watcher, because the, the result is already pre-determined. So that's what people are saying anyway. But there are lots of reports of irregularities. So what was the availability 
So Filipinos living in Melbourne to vote? Uh, there was a, uh, no, overseas absentee voting. And so those Filipinos that are here, they should have registered for overseas absentee voting. I think the close of the registration was October last year. So after they registered, then they would be sent a ballot. And they can vote, and then they can mail that ballot. Or they can go to the polling place here in Melbourne and drop their ballot, you know, that, you know, because it was open from April. The voting was open from April. But there are lots of, you know, there were lots of uh, Filipinos who were not able to vote because the announcement was done very late. And, uh, and actually, even me, I didn't even know that there was a polling place in Melbourne. There is never, this is the first time, there's a, this is the first election, Philippine election, that there is a polling place in Melbourne. Before, it's only in Sydney and Canberra. So a lot of uh, people were disenfranchised, Filipinos there in Melbourne. And there'd be a lot of Filipinos living outside of the Philippines? About 10 million. Yeah. The, the, the last report, there is about 10 million Filipinos living outside the Philippines in different countries, more than about 200 countries. They are scattered everywhere. And one of the main reasons is poverty, to send money back? Yes, yeah. to work, to find work because of the <laughs> unemployment in the Philippines. So they travel, they go overseas, even though there is a risk especially in some other countries where the laws are very, you know, very difficult, just like in the Middle East. Filipinos are not used to those, you know, kind of policies or society there. But still they go there because uh, the reason is we might, you know, be abused there, but here in the Philippines it's not only us that will be abused, including our family, because we have nothing to eat, no jobs. So they'll die hungry. So they just, you know, they take the risk. So there are lots of Filipinos anywhere, even in some poor, even in Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore. So wherever they can find jobs, they go there. The Philippine government is promoting them. The Philippine government is rather than creating jobs for the Filipinos. No, they'd rather promote for Filipinos to go overseas and find work there. That's one way of also pacifying the, you know, the... Um, and easiness of the Filipinos, because if they are all in the Philippines and they cannot find them, of course, there will be. they cannot just, you know, accept it. So that's one way of the government to pacify so that they are not going to protest all the times and, you know, so they just send them out, let them find job anywhere and whatever happened to their citizens, they don't care. We know that um, there's been fraud and corruption in elections in the past in the Philippines. Are people mm-hmm. saying this last one was worse? Yes, this last one was worse. This is, you know, because the incumbent, the incumbent Duterte, and the, you know, the candidate is actually has actually joined forces. So they actually control. Just imagine that there is a there was a petition, a petition to disqualify Marcos because Bongbong Marcos is convicted of tax evasion. He has actually a conviction that until now he hasn't paid the tax, I think, millions and millions. So there was petition to disqualify him. But the members of the COMELEC are all appointed by 
by Duterte. And I think the chairperson of the board of directors of the COMELEC is actually Amy Marcos, which is the sister of Bongbong Marcos. So, so all those petitions were ignored. They were not acted upon. And uh, if they were acted upon, they were not, you know, they, they deny, you know, those petitions. And now there are petitions. The petitions is ongoing. There are uh, the former justice of the Supreme Court has a petition. Another lawyer, uh, attorney Calleja, has a petition. Not a petition for Marcos not to sit, but to disqualify that he should never have been allowed to run for office. Because in the Constitution of the Philippines, if a person is convicted, if he is already in office, he should be terminated. He has to leave his, his uh, public office. And he would never be allowed to run for public office, anyone who is convicted of a crime. Where do you believe this will lead? At the moment, none in the government will do anything because the whole Senate and the Congress is controlled. They are both controlled by the Marcos Duterte, even the Supreme Court, because if any justice that's opposed is being dismissed, it will now be the people of the Philippines who will have the power, as always, to do something about, you know, because uh, many people is not accepting. They are rejecting the result of this election. How are they expressing their concerns? Can they get out on the streets without fear of being arrested or bashed? They're actually doing that. In different parts of the Philippines, there is almost a daily protest. They're doing that. So it's either you go there and protest or don't do anything and still, they can still be target. Activists, even if they don't do anything, they can still be target. And not only that, because before the election, there was this uh, Sambayan. This was a formation of different political People, different political, you know, par- not parties, but even mass organizations, different political persuasion, they combine, they unite to oppose Marcos and, and they field uh, candidates. So the candidate for president was Lenny Robredo. And now that was supposed to be for the election, but even after the election, they are still united and they, that, that they are still, you know, I think, uh, going to do something. When Marco Senior was during the election and then Aquino won, Aquino actually didn't concede. Cory Aquino called for civil disobedience, not to accept Marcos, because uh, that was also fraud. That was that, that election was also cheated. Same as now, the Filipino people, there will be a lot who will be frightened, of course, but there will be a lot as well who will protest in spite of, you know, in spite of uh, violence. Because they know that that is the only way. The Filipinos want uh, democracy in the Philippines. Then there's no way there will be democracy under with Marcos Duterte in power. And I was speaking with Mako Sarkis, a human rights activist from the Philippines, and the people are determined that they will have the president of their choice, not the powers that be. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR, here to stay.
The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity or NESS and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Hello, I'm Ayan Shirwa, the host of 3CR's Diaspora Blues program. If you're a long-time 3CR listener, what is up? And if you're a new listener, welcome. 3CR is home to 400 volunteers and over 126 programs. Every year, we bring you stories that concern all of us. The workers, the unemployed, folks from all walks of life. And unlike the corporate shills, our funding comes directly from the community. In return, we shine the spotlight on stories about the climate crisis, Indigenous communities' fight for sovereignty, Palestinian perspectives, and any of the music or art programs 3CR champions. To help your favourite grassroots media stay on air, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal. You have to try very hard not to have fun on a push bike. Yarrabug, a show about bikes. Get on your bike. Riding them. Sit on the seat. Fixing them. Push your feet on the pedal. Loving them. And ride all around. Mondays, 10am to 10.30 here on 3CR. Push your feet on the pedal. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. This is I Can't Stand the Rain by Chris Wilson. I can't stand the rain Against my window Bringing back sweet memories Yeah, 
That was Chris Wilson with I Can't Stand the Rain. You're on 3CR and it's 7.58am. You're with Annie on uh, 3CR breakfast and uh, I'll have to say we're, uh, we're up to the last part of the, sh- of the show. It is hard not to understand that the world is teetering on the edge of a climate emergency. At the same time, corporate interests and governments play lip service to this fact. But first they use the tactic of normalising the coming disaster and follow with greenwashing wars and repressive laws against activists to maintain business as usual. And last week I collected a couple of snapshots from Europe that give what I think are a chilling aspect to the focus of corporate leaners and cash-strapped countries as they persist in the fossil fuel dance. First up, is from an online rally called Climate Goals Held to Ransom. It brought a focus on the insidious ECT, Energy Charter Treaty, and ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement System, a process that reveals the lengths that corporate leaners will go to sacrifice human rights and the sustainability of the planet for their own interests. First up is an explanation of the system followed by uh, uh, followed by uh, Leah Sullivan from War on Want, and then activist and ecologist Karela Rakiti. You'll know her from her work rescuing refugees in the Mediterranean, and Brenda Akankuta from Uganda, and uh, it finishes. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, it gives you an understanding of what they're fighting for at the moment. They're, they're working towards uh, uh, persuading countries to not uh, sign the ECT, the uh, Energy Charter Treaty, uh, because it is really stalling the ability to actually uh, deal with the climate emergency and uh, making it all about money. Money for investors, the greedy, greedy investors. So let's hear what they had to say. 
The clock is ticking. We must keep coal, oil and gas in the ground to avoid catastrophic global heating. But fossil fuel companies want to keep on profiting and keep on polluting. What most people don't know, if we try to stop them, fossil fuel companies can use secretive corporate courts to sue us. This is because of a mechanism called ISDS in trade deals, which gives corporations the right to sue countries for enacting climate protecting laws that affect the corporation's profits or potential future profits, even if those laws stand between us and climate breakdown. Over decades, global South countries have faced an onslaught of ISDS claims over measures to protect indigenous territories and communities from environmental damage caused by mining and fossil fuel extraction. And now, countries are being sued for taking action to meet even their weak international climate goals. Italy, the US, the Netherlands and Slovenia face claims for a combined £13 billion over plans to phase out coal and stop oil rigs and pipelines. That's 13 billion of public money that could be spent supporting people who can't afford energy bills or to repay our huge climate debt to the global south. And 13 billion is just the beginning. Estimates of potential corporate lawsuits over climate action are in the trillions. Coal, oil and gas companies have already made unimaginable fortunes by driving us towards climate crisis. Now they're demanding huge payments to stop polluting and using the threat of ISDS to delay and prevent climate action. Signing up to ISDS is optional. Countries have removed it from their trade deals before, but the UK includes ISDS in most of its trade deals. The UK still signed up to the Climate Destroying Energy Charter Treaty, the ECT, the world's most widely used treaty for ISDS claims. The ECT, along with other trade deals containing ISDS, enable UK corporations to sue countries all over the world for trying to stop climate breakdown. If we want climate justice, we must call on the UK government to stop ISDS from holding our climate goals to ransom. We must end ISDS. As I hope the video makes clear, if the record-breaking temperatures we're experiencing now, devastating floods, fires and famines aren't weren't enough to remind us, we are constantly being reminded that climate action is ever more urgent and um, scientists are telling us that we need no new oil, coal and gas fields. And according to a new study, um, nearly half of existing fossil fuel production sites need to be shut down early if global heating is to be limited to 1.5. But against this backdrop, we have the Energy Charter Treaty, which blocks, delays, undermines climate action and makes it massively more expensive. So the Energy Charter Treaty, or the ECT, is an agreement from the 1990s for the energy sector, the rules of which apply to 53 countries, primarily in Europe and Asia. But they have intentions to expand to other parts of Africa and Asia. The ECT includes lots of rules, but cornerstone is something called ISDS, Investor to State Dispute Settlement, which enables foreign investor to sue a country if that country does something that could be changing a law or policy that affects the profits or potential future profits of the investor. The ISDF mechanism is increasingly being used by fossil fuel corporations to challenge climate policy, and the ECT is what is being used to challenge it. The ECT is the, the most used treaty for ISDS cases. No trade and investment agreement anywhere in the world has triggered more investor state lawsuits. It has very generous, broad clauses for investors, and it contains sunset clauses, which mean that countries can be sued for 20 years after they leave the treaty. 
the courts that take ISDS cases don't have to consider the obligations of a government to uphold its commitments to climate, to human rights. They don't try to balance public interest with, with private profit. They only care about the obligations to investors created through the trade deal and that allows companies to sue governments for huge sums of money. And the amounts of money that we're talking about are huge and increasing. So it used to be quite unusual to have ISDS awards that went over $1 billion, but that's starting to become more and more common. And the cases that have to do with the fossil fuel sector are some of the biggest. The video briefly mentions five cases against the US, Slovenia, Italy and the Netherlands, totaling 13 billion pounds. And just to mention the specifics of two of these briefly, one of them against the Netherlands is being taken by fossil fuel companies Uniper and RWE, which set up coal-fired power plants in 2015 and 2016. So that's when the Paris Agreement is being signed. So they know that they're not really viable or profitable into the future. And in spite of that, and in spite of actually being offered compensation by the Dutch government, um, they're now trying to shuff, shift the, that burden onto the Dutch taxpayer by suing the, the the Dutch people for 2.4 billion euro. In another case, UK corporation Rockhopper is demanding 275 million euro from the Italian taxpayer after the Italian government took a decision to ban oil drilling near the coast. The Italian government did that over environmental concerns and a local protest against oil drilling. Um, and that amount the Rockhopper is suing for is between seven and nine times uh, what they actually invested in the project. So that's sort of the lost profit elements, potential future profits that, that um, ISDS enables corporations to sue for. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Energy Charter Treaty has made the German coal phase out far more expensive. Um, the, the, the government ex has accepted serious disadvantages in terms of its compensation it's had to pay to these corporations and has paid around 12 times more to the coal companies than they would have otherwise had to pay because of the Energy Charter Treaty. So you might well wonder um, why countries would sign up to this, why they're still members of this treaty, and why have we, have we not terminated it already? And the answer is that things are moving, and we're actually at a really critical juncture right now, which is why we're holding this event and why we're engaged in all of this, uh, this action. Um, Italy has left the treaty a number of years ago. Countries in Europe that have faced high numbers of cases, so Spain, as well as uh, Poland and Germany have expressed support for the possibility of leaving the treaty, but they haven't committed to doing it. Um, but the and so the battle is really far from won, and the, the, we really have to step up pressure on governments within the next few weeks to try and make this a success. At this very moment, this week, governments are meeting to try to decide the future of the treaty. One of the options on the table um, is to not to exit, but to merely amend it in a, a modernization process that has, to be honest, been doomed from the start because it never really mentioned climate change or the need to align with the Paris agree Agreement or to address ISDS. It was, it was an attempt to re-legitimize something that is, has been losing legitimacy for a long time. And that's why we're here today to so say we won't compromise on our future. We want our governments to leave the Energy Charter Treaty without delay. And I'm going to turn to our speakers now to tell you from their perspective as climate, social justice, justice activists, scientists, lawyers, um, why we have to leave ISDS and leave the Energy Charter Treaty in the past.
Um, so I'll pass on, first of all, to Carola Raketa, who is, I'm sure, can do a much better job of introducing herself, but she's a German ship captain um, who volunteered with the German sea rescue organization Sea-Watch um, in 2019. She was arrested for docking a migrant rescue ship um, and with, uh, without authorization, authorization. And she has, in November 2021, uh, published a call for combat climate action. Uh, the time to act is now. Um, so I'll hand over to you, uh, Carola. She will be speaking in English. Thank you very much uh, for organizing this very important webinar, first of all, and for everyone who took the time to join today. Um, I'm not specifically now speaking about the ECT because that will be left to other speakers, but speaking as an ecologist and direct action activist specifically. It's really important, I think, that we realize that a climate crisis is not an accident but a crime and that we have to work together to stop the harm and hold accountable those who are responsible. It is important to find the ECT but at the same time we must not forget to engage directly and end this dark age of fossil fuels by winding down the fossil fuel industry and the extraction as quickly as possible. And I would just like to remind each of us that everyone has their part to play as direct action activists, lawyers, policymakers, industrial workers, scientists, teachers, students, artists. Each one of us has to engage with the skills and experience that we have. And we have to work together to the same direction. At this moment, it's really paramount to prevent new fossil fuel projects or accelerate the shutdown of the already existing infrastructure. In Germany, we have seen that the huge pressure by the grassroots movement has led to an earlier coal phase eight, now moved to 2030. And this grassroots movement really critically included the autonomous uh, forest occupations in the area of Hambach. But the direct action the occupations um, and the civil disobedience are really important ways to confront and accelerate the decision-making, but only when supported and moving hand-in-hand hand with a broader civil society movement. But this only can be the first step, because really we have to take control of and wind down the fossil fuel companies like RWE or Wintershall, which are the biggest in Germany. We need the workers across all parts of the fossil fuel sectors to hold accountable the companies from the inside, but also to get public support to transition towards work that provides dignity, self-direction and planetary safety for people. In Europe, we also have to stand in solidarity with people on the front lines who struggle against European um, companies fueling the climate crisis. For example, we must join people in Tanzania and Uganda who fight total regarding the new pipeline project AirCorp, the East African crude oil pipeline, or Soko and Total who are planning to extract uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo in a protected area that is called Birunga and is actually also riddled with a lot of colonial structures and human rights abuses. A new global focus for sure is also fossil gas and fracking projects. In Germany, for example, a huge focus is now to prevent the building of new terminals. 
I believe if we live in the global north, we must also include um, or connect the fracking overseas to the fracking at home. Because in countries like France or the UK or Germany, there are decades of resistance and local citizens' initiatives. If we do not want frack gas from our own alpine hills of picturesque uh, Bavaria, for example, we cannot allow to import the same gas from Vaca Muerta, the Yamal Peninsula or the Okavanga Delta. And I would like to um, add a final word of caution as an, ecology, as an ecologist. Um, the survival of us and our families is strongly tied to the survival of earthworms and ants and all the millions of unknown species that comprise healthy ecosystems. Uh, therefore, the struggle for our common future must include assuming responsibility and stewardship for the living planet. We must not replace fossil fuel projects by other industries that are harmful to the living planet. And according to the International Expert Panel on the Biodiversity, it's only possible if we abandon the paradigm of economic growth. We need a transition that is based on restorative justice and respects our responsibilities and dependence on the living planet. Finally, I'd like to remind you there's a lot to do to end the dark ages of fossil fuels. Do not forget that each of you has a very crucial part to play in the story of transformation. And there are many ways to take part in action, legal and citizen initiatives and workplaces in land occupations. Each of them is needed and important, and each of you is very crucial to winning. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak on this uh, rally. First of all, I think this is not even just an issue that Uganda faces, but something that is uh, happening globally. And what we are seeing at the moment is that there is a silent expansion of this energy charter treaty, especially within um, the global south, that is Africa and Latin America. I know we've had discussions and uh, conversations that there is a modernization going on, but at the same time we've also seen that uh, there's always a budget for the East. ECT secretariat specifically for the expansion. So that clearly shows us that actually even at the moment, expansion is still going on. So we wouldn't even want to think that maybe it has been put to a halt uh, as we think about modernization. Uganda and Africa as a whole, we are least developed countries uh, to start with. And uh, for that reason, there is much need for us to attract FDI. And because of this very much need, especially um, within the energy sector, you see, when you look at countries like Uganda, where I am, our access to electricity is as low as 20% and as low as 40% for the entire Africa. So it shows you how much uh, we're going to see uh, states coming up and wanting to, you know, attract investment so that they can be able to exploit that energy sector and maybe provide uh, electricity access for everyone, which is quite a challenge. And what we've seen oftentimes is that because of this need to attract FDIs, there is a growing recognition of uh, bilateral investment treaties and other investment agreements. And in uh, 2019, we saw Uganda coming out to send a letter to the ECT Secretariat expressing interest to join um, the ECT first of all, um, had a lot of issues regarding that particular line. The fact that even when you look at how the ECT is framed, 
it targets ministries that have not uh, ideally been handled in negotiations because I don't know how it's done out there, but uh, for countries like Uganda, you know that negotiations will either fall under the ministry in charge of finance or maybe trade. But you see here, uh, talking about a whole different ministry, which means even the negotiating capacity may not be that strong, and uh, we see them being persuaded to perhaps take a position that would be detrimental to a country. And this goes on because we've seen other countries now, our colleagues uh, within the ESC like Burundi, we saw that they are even at the last stage of ratifying this um, energy charter treaty. Yet uh, last year we saw Burundi government coming out to suspend all the mining contracts that it has. And for me, that triggered my mind to think about the likelihood of if, for instance, they had ratified the Energy Charter Treaty, what that would mean, because uh, we saw that part of the mining companies that were in Burundi, some of them are even operating under bilateral investment treaties like uh, Burundi and UK. So it triggered my mind to think of what would actually happen if uh, there was already this ECT in place looking at the way it is structured and those problematic clauses that are in it, including clauses to do with the zombie clauses and uh, how much they would have to pay in terms of uh, investor state dispute settlements. So I think as a country and as a, as a, a continent that is already, first of all, uh, struggling to, with, because of the debt burden and a lot of resources being lost out there, we are not prepared taken this energy charter treaty and this is why we have uh, been uh, quite vocal in trying to tell uh, to convince our government to say that we think that they need to debunk that myth that uh, all the problems we have as a continent uh, especially facing the energy sector will be solved by just a mere document which is the energy charter treaty and just beyond that there are also a lot of risks especially when it comes to Climate change, and, and this is something that we've, this is a call that we've put out globally. When you look at the way this energy charter treaty uh, takes away the sovereignty of of the states to act, for instance, uh, we've, we've always had campaigns. Recently, we had a campaign in Lamu, in Kenya, saying that we should stop Lamu. We've had a campaign going on in Uganda to say that we should uh, stop destructing Bugoma Forest. I think we have that liberty to even uh, put up a campaign, and sometimes our governments listen to us. But the moment we've uh, become party or ratified this Energy Charter Treaty, it means we have given away our rights as a country or as a continent to even uh, act in the interest of the public, meaning um, we've given away our sovereignty, and where does that leave us? For me, I would actually want to understand the framers of this Energy Charter Treaty, why, for instance, would uh, anyone put up uh, the zombie clause that says even after you exit, you can still be held liable 26 years after? It shows you that this particular agreement is uh, beyond just uh, maybe uh, investment in the energy sector, but rather focuses on uh, protecting these particular investors. At Siatini, we run a campaign that is dubbed Life Before Profit, saying that in whatever we do, we should prioritize the rights of the citizens, of the communities, of the host states. But if we are so much interested in uh, this, in exploiting 
our energy resources and we don't put to the front the rights of the citizens, we're going to have a, a, a country or a continent that has no people anymore, that you know, cannot defend its sovereignty when it comes to protecting its environment. COP27 is being held in Egypt, as already been mentioned. It's not being held in Cairo. It's being held in Sharm el-Sheikh. And there will be people here who have probably been to Sinai. Sharm el-Sheikh is a resort on the Sinai, Sinai coast. It can very easily be isolated from the rest of Egypt. And that is why uh, the Egyptian government has held various international meetings there. It will be impenetrable to activists. Um, and the record of the Sisi regime, as you know, in terms of repression, broad human rights interests, uh, issues and so on, is deplorable. Uh, the chance of, of domestic activists from Egypt or others participating in any way is pretty much nil. Um, Egyptian activists are now networking to prepare a type of inclusive statement which I think they will be putting to ourselves and to others to highlight some of the issues in Egypt. Because, you know, just to identify the problem there, um, Egypt is the largest oil producer in Africa outside OPEC. Um, there's been a recent enormous a, a discovery of an enormous new gas field there. And the Egyptian government is working flat out to build three massive gas-fired power stations. All this is going on while the Egyptian government has failed to set any target for emissions. So for the regime, COP27 presents a fantastic greenwashing opportunity against the background, not only of the issues I've just mentioned, but against a background of the most extreme repression and you probably know that the present regime came to power after a military coup in 2013. So Egyptian activists, people involved in NGOs, human rights organizations, charitable organizations and so on, are looking for ways to express their views about this. There is no, not really even an inch of room for maneuver for them. Um, and they will have to, they will be wanted to be very creative and work really through international solidarity networks. So <clears throat> I can't call speak on behalf of them. I'm just passing on the knowledge that I have of what they would like to do and how they would like to collaborate with other activists in the global south and also with ourselves so that some of the issues around COP27 are really openly aired from their point of view. Thank you. Yeah, that was just a little insight into corporate leaners and uh, the holding of climate goals to ransom. Thanks, Tony, for that feature about an online rally against the Energy Charter Treaty, set up to extract money from the countries who are putting in legislation to protect the environment. Activists are concerned that this allows organisations to sue countries for billions of dollars through a mechanism called Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS, if countries take climate action that affects corporate profits. You can find out more about the campaign to stop ISDS from the group waronwant.org, and you can catch Annie on Solidarity Breakfast from 7.30am on Saturdays here on 3CR. 
This is a song called Loka Kenny about historical songs from the Torres Strait.
That was a song from the Torres Strait Islands, uh, from the Allen Songs Project. That's it from us this morning. Join us tomorrow from 7am for more Breakfast Current Affairs. You've been with Elysium. Catch you next week. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and help keep communities strong. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for another year.